Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet chasing bear. This week, I'm down in Brinkley, Arkansas, goose hunting with Jonathan Wilkins at his Black Duck Revival camp. I'm not a big waterfowl guy, and that's not because I don't like it. It's just that I live in the mountains, and we're not on a major flyway. I didn't grow up waterfowl hunting, but it is hard to deny the excitement and the uniqueness of the experience of waterfowl hunting. We actually recorded this podcast before the hunt, so we don't talk a lot about our actual hunt, but Jonathan talks about waterfowl hunting in Arkansas, goose hunting, what we're going to be doing, and I can tell you that we had a great time. Also, around our fire is Natalie Krebs with Outdoor Life. Natalie has been a writer for Outdoor Life for six years, and we had a great conversation with her as well. Deer season in Arkansas, rifle season anyway, is officially over, and we're about to start coon hunting and squirrel hunting hard. If you have dogs or need dog-related stuff, check out W Hunting Supply. These guys have everything you need. We say it every week, and we'll keep saying it. Even if you have pet dogs, retrieving dogs, bird dogs, coon dogs, squirrel dogs, uh, yappy dogs, lap dogs, grandma dogs. I hope none of you guys have those last part dogs, but, you know, the other kind of dogs. Man, W Hunting Supply has everything you need. Collars, leashes, Garmin products. They've got the new Garmin Alpha 200i tracking system that has a built-in inReach. Everything you need, and hey, these guys are fighting the good fight for 
for hunting dogs, sporting dogs, and Buddy Woodbury and his team are fantastic at customer service. Check them out. Hey, CVA muzzleloaders. Man, if you listen to this full episode, you're going to hear me talk and be real honest about an experience I had with my muzzleloader this week. CVA muzzleloaders make an incredible line of muzzleloaders. I love them because you can take the breach out by hand. I have got no choice but to be honest with you guys. I had a misfire on a gun this week, and it was a pretty unique experience. And I go, I detail what happened, and it actually wasn't the CVA's fault. It was Clay's fault. So you're going to learn something. Listen to the end of this podcast, and you'll hear what happened. But the fact that I was carrying that muzzleloader during rifle season, I was carrying it because of its lightness because of how short it is how accurate it is and i just like the gun check out cva muzzleloaders muzzleloader seasons are a great time to hunt deer and there's a lot of favorable reasons to own a muzzleloader but you got to be tuned in on how to use a muzzleloader because they are different than a rifle and that's what i'm learning and that's why i'm being honest and just sharing the whole story hey check out the end of this podcast you might you might learn something Northwoods Bear Products, best commercial bear scents on the market. Been using them for many, many, many years. Getting ready for spring bear hunting, you're going to want to use Northwoods Bear Products. We're building the January-February issue of Bear Hunting Magazine as we speak. This is our spring bear hunting issue. We're anticipating that the Canadian border is going to be open by May and June this year, and even if you're spring bear hunting in the United States, wherever you're at, Northwoods Bear Products is what you need to be using. Lastly, Western Bear Foundation, our buddies out west, nonprofit hunting conservation organization fighting the good fight for bear hunters and predator management in the west. Check them out. There's plenty of time to order some Bear Hunting Magazine merchandise for Christmas. Colby the Bear Tech Moorhead is literally sitting at his computer waiting for orders to come in so that he can send them to you. He might even write you a personal note thanking you for your purchase. We've got some new First Light Cypher Bear Grease hats. This Bear Grease hat has become one of our most popular, but we've also got our Flashy Mule Bear Dogs in solid colors. We've got a lot of new stuff. We've also got a full line of shirts, coffee cups, phone cases, with all these unique Bear Hunting Magazine designs on them. Check out our merchandise at bear-hunting.com. Oh, yeah, we've got also a new shirt that says acorns. Acorns, all right? About a quarter of the country pronounces the word spelled A-C-O-R-N as acorn. I can't even say with my mouth the way that the other 75% of the country says that word. But around here, we say acorn, and we have memorialized and commemorated and celebrated the pronunciation of this word with a new shirt. Get the acorn shirt, you know, if you're on the team. You're going to enjoy this podcast with Jonathan Wilkins and Natalie Krebs about your life. All right, we're... We are in Brinkley, Arkansas, not at the global headquarters. We're at the uh, 
We're at the global headquarters of Black Duck Revival. This is pretty significant. Um, Jonathan, anytime we're actually recording this podcast by fire, I, uh, okay, this is a test for both of you. Mm-hmm. I've got another guest here that we'll introduce here in a minute. This will, this will determine how well you know the Bear Honey Magazine podcast. What do I always do if there's a fire that we're around? I know they're going to fail. Pee on it. <laughs> no, well, later. That's after. No one knows about that. No, we. I always tell it's significant what kind of wood it is. Oh, so if you're okay. in Canada, you know, you know, you're like this is a soft wood birch fire, fast burning, hot, crackly. We're sitting over a red oak fire, Arkansas red oak fire. Relatively quiet, nice, pleasant smoke. Not many sparks. Burns for long periods of time. So we're going to be warm. So we're outside. Um, now I'm with I'm with Jonathan Wilkins of Black Duck Revival. Jonathan's been on a couple times, and then uh, hey, our special guest Natalie Krebs. Um, Natalie, good to good to meet you. I we had talked for an article that you had done one time, but this is the first time to 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 meet you. So. Yeah, yeah, it's good to meet you in person. Uh, yeah, that article was what last year for Outdoor Life, but yeah, this is better. Than yeah, fun. yeah, I think uh, I think it was. I think it came out in 2019, I guess. Summer of 2019. No, fall of 2019. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because, yep. yeah, it made you go hunting in July. But we can talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan, well, we might as well talk about it now. Do you, did you know about that? I did not. Okay. Well, the reason I know her is because Natalie watched a, a, a video of us uh, coon hunting on mules. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we wanted to do a raccoon story for Outdoor Life. Um, we hadn't done anything on raccoon hunting in years. Um, but I was trying to find an interesting angle, and I don't know why, but Google turned up um, hunting for raccoons on muleback in the Ozarks. And I'm from Missouri, and I had never heard of this and was like, well, i got to find somebody who still does this. And I found you on YouTube, and I called you up, and we did a story on it. Well, it was interesting because it was just like a few months before that is when we put that video out. So I'd never made any content on coon hunting on mules. And so... Yeah, it was it was great, and so there was an article in Outdoor Life, and uh, you guys sent, but I didn't meet you. We just did a phone interview. Yeah, and you guys sent, uh, what's his name, guys? Giacomo. Giacomo. Who oh, I have Fortunato. Never- Giacomo Fortunato from New York City. I mean, came to Arkansas for three days, ate at our kitchen table, hauled him around, coon hunting on mules. I mean, he was like, he was a super neat guy. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that worked out because sometimes we'll send photographers from New York City and it <laughs> to parts unknown and it does not work out. <laughs> <laughs> he was an interesting guy for sure. But uh, I think he took like 1,500 photos in like three days and you guys used like eight of them. Yeah, that sounds right. But the ones we used turned out awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, I'll, uh, we still we was we still talk about uh, Giacomo. He was an, he was a neat guy, um, but so that's how I know you. Just to establish that, so Natalie, you work for Outdoor Life. I do work for Outdoor Life. Yes, um, I've been there for about six years, um, and I just moved to Arkansas from New York City this summer. And Jonathan, that's the bizarre part is that yeah, she was in New York City when uh, when when you know we did the phone interview. And then a couple months ago at a 
at some event, I heard somebody say, yeah, Natalie Krebs is going to be there. And anyway, I heard you lived in Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. You were one of two people I knew who lived in Arkansas before I moved here. So right on, right on. <laughs> well, now, you know, Bear and Shepard, I've got Bear yeah. and Shepard here too. My boys, they don't have mics on, but, uh, they, they know Giacomo. They were part of that. They were part of that article too. There you go. But, um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess you got to tell us, so with, with COVID, Outdoor life kind of was able to, you You didn't have to be in the office as much. And so it kind of changed the company. You don't have to go into all the details, but like essentially you lived in New York for six years. Yes. Which um, is where Outdoor Life was based right. out like, of. I moved to New York City because I started working for Outdoor Life. Um, that's where our parent company was based. Uh, but long story short, uh, the city shut down in mid-March when COVID really started to hit. And I left. I mean, I threw all my stuff in a rental car and I went uh, back home to Missouri. Um, and I've been working remote for months and then was able to move to Arkansas um, and keep my job and work remote. And here I am. Wow. Jonathan, would you move to New York City to work for Outdoor Life? Uh, probably not. I've got a family. <laughs> I don't know if I I mean, I you could take them with you. The, uh, qu- the question is more about, like, if you're an outdoor writer writing about the nitty-gritty of North American hunting and fishing, would you move to New York, and how, like, intuitive would that geographic move be? I'm 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 kind of making yeah. a point here. I mean, I guess it depends on it depends on how <laughs> long you stay in New York City or if you move about. But uh, have you ever been to New York City? I have. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it. Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind spending spending some real time there. Uh, but uh, economically, I don't know if I could endure. I'm, I'm used to what stuff costs in Arkansas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, that was my point. Was like, uh, why? is outdoor life based in New York City. Yeah. I mean, it, it was because we were owned by a parent company and there's a, you know, a long storied tradition of publications being based in New York City. Um, they've got a great airport to fly you to all the rural places that you need to go for work. Okay. But also, I mean, New York State itself um, is actually a fantastic place if you like to hunt and fish. I mean, I once mm. took an Uber from Brooklyn to Long Island to hunt Brant on a weekend morning. Like the duck hunting on wow. Long Island is nuts all along the coast. They've got deer hunting, bear hunting. Um, I mean, it's it's a really cool mm. place when you get outside of the city and it it doesn't take you that long to get there. The Catskills are just north of the city. Adirondacks, um, Adirondack Park is one of the wildest places I've ever been on the East mm. Coast and it's in New York State, Finger Lakes. Um, so you do have to make an effort, but I'm not upset that I lived there when I did. I mean, I yeah. learned a lot living there. Yeah. Do you remember, Natalie, I don't know how old you are. Do you remember those Pace Picante uh, commercials? Jonathan, you're about New York age. City? Yeah. Yeah. I Man, do not remember You don't those. remember those? Nope. Okay, well, there was, so Pace Picante sauce, you know, like America's favorite, like dirt cheap, like Picante sauce. It's okay. really not America's favorite, but probably really generic at least where jonathan and i are from and they had this marketing deal years ago where these guys were sitting around a fire and they picked up this paste picante sauce and they read or this random picante the 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 other type of picante sauce they read the label and somebody said where's that from and they and they said new york city and man it just branded a whole generation of people that if you were a guy, and it was usually set up around a fire, mm. and it was these cowboys, 
And so, you know, it's like, it ruined me to thinking that New York City could have any kind of, like, connection to the outdoors. Now I realize that, like, uh, well, I realize what you're saying. Like, New York State is a great place for hunting and fishing in a lot of ways. Yeah, but not hot sauce. Uh, New York City does not have a claim <laughs> to fame for hot sauce, so uh, that's accurate. Okay, okay. How How far would you have to drive out of New York City to get into, like, rural New York? Um, that depends how bad the traffic was. I mean, as the crow flies, it was not far. I mean, you could get to someplace in 90 miles to hunt deer. I mean, Long Island is, has some of the best bow hunting, um, in New York state simply because they don't bow hunt on Long Island. Yes, but you can't use, um, they don't have a gun season. Um, so there's a lot of deer. I mean, I talked to a game warden once, uh, who was like, have you seen the deer they have on Staten Island? And then the amount of poaching that happens because they don't have any uh, wildlife management uh, or real like hunting management in any of the five boroughs. So Staten Island is part of New York City and they've just got huge bucks on the island and people hmm. will poach them and try and take care of the deer, but there's no hunting season there. So it's it's this really weird intersection of, um, yeah, of like great hunting that abuts this huge metropolis. Um, but there's a, there's an archery range out by JFK airport where like the crustiest old, um, like trad bow hunters go to shoot their bows every Saturday and Sunday morning. Like Mm. if you want to get into something hunting or fishing related in New York city, like you can find people who are into it, which is pretty cool. There's, um, there was a, uh, rod and gun club, a block and a half from my apartment in Brooklyn. Really? Um, yeah, they had a they had a pistol range in the basement and a archery range up on the second floor. Well, isn't that where Teddy Roosevelt and the Boone and Crockett Club was like started and whatnot? Yeah, so he was born in um, this old brownstone building, like ten blocks from the old Outdoor Life office, which was pretty cool. And mm. then his house, um, like his his summer retreat when he was president, um, it's called uh, Sagamore Hill, and it's out in Oyster Bay on. I think it's the north side of Long Island, so out where the duck hunting's good, that sort of thing. Hmm. Man, that's that's interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, Jonathan, we are here to go on a goose hunt. Is that yep, right? In the Is morning. that what we're doing in the morning? Yep, we're gonna uh, chase speckle belly geese. Yeah. So, so for for people that wouldn't have been familiar with uh, with black duck revival and your guiding service like like talk to us about just kind of like your place and what we're going to be doing um so you know black duck revival started just as a as like a point of lodging and that's kind of how i've run it you know essentially as an airbnb for the last couple years for duck hunters and then this year we've you know kind of expanded our offerings um i've got a couple of long-term rentals like in later season uh some folks will like have the the whole place for about a month or so but for the earlier part of season we're doing some we partnered up with an outfitter uh, about 30 miles away from here is where most of their fields are and around carlisle and uh, they've been focusing on speckle belly geese and snow geese for about seven years which is just more and more and more both of those species in uh in the arkansas delta these days and so we're we're kind of trying to offer something a little bit unique where uh, instead of just going to a place to, you know, try and shoot a bunch of birds and, uh, you know, eat ribeye dinners and drink beer all night, we're uh, we're trying to add a little bit more education to the process. So we've kind of added a, 
or put together, I think, uh, a more holistic package. So we'll go out, we'll hunt geese, we'll come back, we'll eat breakfast, uh, and then we'll spend a lot of time like talking about the geese, talking about some species-specific stuff with those birds. Um, we'll, I've been showing people how to wax pluck birds, which is not a real common method. It's, I think they do a lot more of it down in Louisiana than a lot of other places, but uh, it's a way to you know, pluck a bird completely and really get a really nice product. Uh, a lot of folks are kind of stuck in the idea of uh, just breasting out ducks and geese. So you get a lot more yield out of the birds this way. You learn more about them. You learn how to actually work with them and process them. And, you know, just some of the, the rules about transporting them and whatnot. Uh, we've done some just one day kind of hunt packages. And then we've got some full weekend packages and we're even doing a couple kind of corporate things uh, for some groups this year. But, uh, yeah, man, just kind of trying to, you know, expand the brand a little bit and broaden our offerings and, you know, hopefully do a little bit of good at the same time. Yeah. So where we're at right now is a, it's a real, I'm impressed with the facility, man. I mean, I knew that I would be, but I mean, no, coming thanks. here, I mean, like, it's nice. It's like super comfortable. It's bigger than I thought it would be. Oh, I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, it, it just when I walked in, I was like, hey, this is bigger than what I thought. It's a big uh, open floor plan, too, that kind of yeah. adds to that. So what's cool, boys, y'all might not know this, but Mr. Jonathan, this was an old church, and he he did all this and made it into Duck Hunting Lodge. How many, how many people will this lodge hold? So, like, in normal times, uh, you'd have... You know, I normally say, you know, about seven people in there. There's a queen-size sofa sleeper. There's a queen-size bed uh, in the back master bedroom. And then there's two bedrooms with uh, two fulls in each one. Uh, and then I've got the I've got the building next to it as well that I fixed up and added on called the Black Duck Bungalow. And that's a three-bedroom place with five beds. Uh, but so for, like, the events I'm putting on and because of COVID and everything, I've I've kind of kept uh, kept the numbers down. I'm trying to, like, everyone's either in a private room or they're bunking with someone that they traveled with, so that knocks the numbers down a little bit this year. Yeah. But, uh, but you could, on a normal year, you could hold, like, maybe 12 people here? I mean, both places maxed out. You'd probably be, like, 12 or 13. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. So somebody could come down here that knew nothing about waterfowl hunting like me. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you're gonna you're gonna get a a world class goose hunting experience. I yeah, mean, man, about getting, as good as it gets, is it not? We're getting. I mean, I don't want to talk anything up too much, but uh, you know, so I mean, there's a lot of reasons for it, but um, there's just a lot of speckle belly geese. You know, the, the proper name is a white fronted goose. Uh, in the Arkansas Delta. Let's keep this legit. So, yeah, we'll, we'll from now on call white it the fronted geese. white-fronted, yeah. So there's white-fronted geese and there's light geese. Light <laughs> geese consist of snow geese, blue geese, and uh, which is a color variant, and uh, Ross's geese. Um, and there's just a ton of them in the Arkansas Delta now. It's a combination of agriculture. It's a combination of uh, habitat destruction down in Louisiana where, like, you know, speckle bellies, like really speckle belly 
or white fronted goose hunting culture is from Louisiana. Really? So yeah. they're just passing. They're usually just passing through here to I mean, get down there. Yeah, there'd always be some specks here, but uh, I mean they've kind of evolved to root around in the marshlands of Louisiana, and now mm. because of hurricanes and oil and habitat destruction, a lot of that. Uh, so they're not going as far south. Yeah, I mean, they're still going down there, but uh, there's just not as much form down there, it seems, uh, as I understand it right now. Um, and then a lot of those rice fields in, uh, down in Louisiana there, once they get the rice harvest, they flood those fields about two feet deep to do a crawfish harvest, and that's too deep for waterfowl. Hmm. You know, you got to think like a duck wants to be able to, especially like a dabbling duck or something, wants to be able to, you know, put its butt up in the air and when it sticks its head down, it's trying to reach the bottom. So two feet's too deep. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so there's a, you know, there's clim climatic stuff as well. There's a lot of reasons why there's so many birds in East Arkansas right now, but it's kind of been a. No, it's not, it's not ducks though. It's geese. I mean, there's ducks. I mean, there's still ducks in Arkansas. Uh, but the duck hunting is not as good as it was, came known to be. It's, it's getting, years it's, ago. I mean, it's, it depends on who you talk to and what they have as far as properties to hunt. But, uh, I mean, all in all, duck hunting is is more difficult than it was, you know, say 10 years ago. There's fewer birds. There's a lot of pressure. I mean, there's a ton of pressure on ducks in Arkansas. Um, it's, you know, it's just branded as a place that people want to come. So you get a lot of people from you know, especially all over the south. From that New York City? You get folks from New like York Natalie. City. Hey, I'm a resident now. Yeah, that's right. She's from Arkansas now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, man, there's just, there's a lot of pressure here. There's, uh, like right now, there's not very much water. It hasn't been very wet so far this year. And so that limits some of the places the ducks can go. So, you know, I mean, uh, waterfowling by its nature is, you know, is like an ephemeral activity. Like waterfowl. These are migrating birds, and they go different places and do different things. And so as human beings, we kind of want stuff to stay the same, but that's not how nature works, you know? And so there's mm -hmm. these patterns, and things shift, and we influence it, and nature influences. And, yeah, there's some kind of some interesting changes going on right now. And so uh, there's a ton of opportunity for these speckle bellies, and they're fantastic table fare, and they're really fun to hunt, and you, know, you hunt them in a different way. So... Uh, like I said, I partnered up with those guys uh, that have really become experts at it. And, you know, I'm learning every time I go out and take a group out, I'm learning more and more and more about it and, you know, getting better at blowing a spec call and figuring out why we're decoying them this way or that way and how they behave differently than, you know, mallards, which is what I've spent most of the last 10 years kind of focusing on. So, uh, yeah, man, it's, it's, it, it's fun and it can be educational and it's a, it's a really good entry point for people that don't have a ton of experience, uh, either in waterfowling or, or just in hunting in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we've kind of talked about it before, but you know, human beings, uh, they react differently to, to birds and fish and reptiles and they do mammals. So there's, there's kind of a little bit less of a barrier to entry for somebody that might not have a lot of experience in hunting to kind of enter the world of, of hunting birds as opposed to I see hunting, you know, like a deer you know, or a bear. I, that idea is not foreign to me, but I, I wouldn't have just spouted it off quite that with that much clarity. I, I haven't, I haven't thought of 
and I mean, I, maybe I've said it before, but just in this moment, I, I, I've not thought of bird hunting being a good first step into hunting because of, because they don't have eyelashes. Yeah. And it's, uh, <laughs> boys, do y'all know, I keep talking to my, for the listeners here, I'm, I keep talking to my boys who don't have head headphones. Did you know that they say that animals that have eyelashes, people like connect to differently than animals that don't? So you can shoot birds, you can kill snakes, you can kill lizards or whatever. <laughs> you ever heard that, Natalie? I have, yeah. My older sister does not want to kill a big game animal, but she really wants to shoot birds. Okay. So I that's interesting to me that you say that, though, Jonathan. It's like I feel like there's so much that goes into successfully hunting waterfowl, everything from gear to like figuring out birds to the calling mm -hmm. that unless you have somebody like you who's helping people out, it can be really difficult to crack into. Like, no, there's, there's a lot of barriers yeah. to entries on it. I mean, it can be expensive. It's really gear intensive. Like when we hunt tomorrow, we're going to be putting out hundreds and hundreds of decoys. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good place, you know, for mentorship. Um, it's also something that, you know, I would hazard to guess that most people, you know, duck hunting or goose hunting, it's like you hear a lot in Arkansas, you know, about like I hunted 60 days, which is most people that tell you that are lying. I mean, 60 <laughs> days, 60 days of chasing ducks will just wear you out. It'd be hard to keep a regular job doing that. Yeah. For most people, it's probably a couple of weekend trips or something, you know, mm -hmm. and so it's uh it can kind of be a little bit more of a, a special thing. It's a, it's normally most of the time it's kind of a social thing. Um, and, and even in the midst of all this craziness, you know, with a bunch of precautions and stuff in place, we're still kind of trying to keep it, you know, a little bit social and keep some of those barriers to entry, uh, out of people's way so they can, yeah. I mean, it's like I said, man, if we don't, if we don't fire a shot tomorrow, like y'all will see a show that'll, I mean, it's just breathtaking. It's like being in a David Attenborough documentary or something. That's really the way, that's the thing that strikes me about it the most is it's just so amazing to see these huge numbers of animals and the way they move together and, you know, these like amalgous organisms, they're all separate, but they're moving together and, uh, and that, and especially with speckle bellies, it's such a call and response sort of thing. You know, mm. it's like they make a, lot a noise. Of calling. Yeah, they make a noise. Do you have your you calls around thing. your neck? I don't. I want. I want you to get them. I want you to do a call for us at oh, some I, point. At some point. I don't want to do that. You don't want to do no, that. No, I mean, if we were talking about ducks, it'd be one thing, but I don't want to embarrass myself with these speckle belly calls. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, what's your experience goose hunting? Uh, I have. Some experience goose hunting and duck hunting. Um, it's always something I do with a buddy, though. I've never gone off on my own and done it. Uh, yeah. Also, I cannot call. I'm horribly tone deaf, and that's tough for me. So okay. I'm sure it would sound great to me, Jonathan. Oh, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't sound great to all the, <laughs> the thousands of people listening. I mean, I am I feel like I'm rounding the corner on that spec call. It's a, it's a very different uh, I mean, everything's different about it. The, the reed setup, the wedge setup is different. The air presentation is very different. What you do with your tongue is different. Uh, and so I kind of had to unlearn some stuff from duck calling to start getting a handle on that spec calling. And then also specs are like the most, you know, they're like the most vocal 
species of waterfowl. They have just a mm. ton of different vocalizations from like these two note yodels to three note yodels to clucks. We gotta hear to it, murmurs. dude. These bear hunters don't know how to duck hunt. <laughs> they're not even gonna be able to. They're they're gonna hear you and be like, "Man, that guy's good." We'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Okay. Well, so the have you written about duck hunting? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so where have you duck hunted or, or waterfowl hunted? Uh, first place I ever went was Kansas. Um, so we did, uh, one day was like a pit blind for ducks, and the next was a big uh, field hunt with a bunch of people and had that sort of show that Jonathan's talking about. Mm. Um, and then Saw I, a bunch of geese. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, some duck hunts with a buddy in the southwest, um, that Long Island hunt for Brant. Um, a little bit all over the place, but nothing where I've gotten to the point where I'm going out scouting, patterning. Like, that's something right. that's still pretty foreign and really interesting to me. Yeah. So. Were, you so, hun- were you hunting honkers? Yeah, honkers, and then we killed some snow geese, um, cool. a couple speckle bellies. Okay. Yeah. Um. So, like, while we were driving down here, Jonathan, like, right before dark, like, mm-hmm. the last 30 minutes before we got here to Brinkley, we were seeing these big flocks of geese. We were trying. I was trying to explain to Bear how biologists estimate numbers of any kind of wildlife that is in flocks or big herds. Because he was like, "How many? How many geese do you think that is, Dad?" And I said, "The way that you estimate when something's flying or there's a big herd of elk is you would you would try to count as many as you could Mm -hmm. and stay on top of you know your accuracy. So if you could count like." Five. Du- I said, try to count five geese. And so we were, you know, these geese are like flying and we're driving. So, you know, it's like hard to like keep your eyes on them. But we would count five geese. And then I said, so estimate how many chunks of ducks or geese that big is in that flock. And so some of these flocks we thought, and you know, we were, we were just totally, probably, well, we were probably in the ballpark where some of these V's had to have had 200 geese in them. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, but there would be multiple V's like mm-hmm. the, so, you know, when geese fly, they, they fly in these big V patterns and there would be like layers of V pattern. There'd just be like these wads, but I, I bet we saw, I don't know, 5,000 geese the last, you know, 45 minutes driving down the road. I mean, just for us, for a while there, mm-hmm. any direction you looked, you would see like this cluster you know, but yeah. I mean, that, that's pretty fascinating to me. There's man, there's tons and tons and tons. I mean, I've seen, I've seen a field of geese, you know, I mean, specifically snows where, you know, I mean, I've thrown the number out like 15 or 20,000 in a field, you know, wow. like in these wow. huge tornadoes that take forever for them all to get down. Uh, what was it most likely that we saw out here? Could it, it could have been any of those geese that you said? It or, would have or, been. It would have been I mean, big wads like that, I'd probably, if there's just huge wads of them like that, it's probably snows, but I mean, it'll be snows and specks mixed together. Okay. I mean, they'll, I mean, you can tell by the way they call, you know, uh, specks will have that yodel and snows make a similar noise without as much of a break in it. So it doesn't, the. Man, it'd be great if we could hear it. Man, you know, YouTube's a fantastic (laughs) tool. Um, <laughs> see, that's the thing. Natalie will blow the goose call. <laughs> no, I will not. <laughs> uh, hey, right now, is there like, are there snows down here more? Like you, you were talking about, I like the way you described uh, waterfowl hunting being ephemeral. 
you know, meaning that like it changes mm-hmm. constantly. You might it might be really good today, not as good tomorrow. Um, like what's happening like right now? I mean, there's there's ducks here, there's speckle bellies here, there's uh, there's tons of snows. There's even within that, there's probably like some cacklers, like lesser uh, Canada's. Which one's the biggest? I mean, the biggest goose of all is going to be like a greater Canada. I mean, you can okay. get... You there's know. no can the can the Canadian geese don't flock up like these big snow and speckles. Not here as much. I mean, there's not nearly as many Canadas, and it's Why? when it's when it's geese, it's always Canadas. It's never Canadians. Canadians gotcha. are people. Gotcha. Canadas <laughs> are the plural of the. Did, geese. Would you have known that, Natalie? Yeah, I've uh, I've hunted in Saskatchewan before, and the outfitters so there call them. do not like it when Americans show up and want to shoot Canadians. So. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Natalie's a copy editor too, so I figured <laughs> she knew that. Yeah, okay. I I just learned something, and so did all the my hillbilly bear hunters. There you go. Yeah, don't. It's but not no, Canadian man, there, geese. Bear, can't. how many times have we said that? Like in the last week, a lot. We've got all these like resident flocks of yeah. Canada geese all over that never leave. You know, so we've got Canada geese on a pond like right by our house that we see pretty often. That bear really wants to kill. Yeah, you got to get permission on that, man. Oh, we got the permission, bro. Do you really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fish and deer hunt and do whatever we want. (laughs) Dude, we should go get him. (laughs) Jonathan's going to leave the bazillion geese over here to go hunt the two, (laughs) my only two Canada goose. You're gonna. You want to come kill those? Oh, okay. you just have a pair. I thought you had a big <laughs> wad of them. Ah, uh, we do. I don't know how many are there. There's quite a few at times. At times. No. So I, I was. That helped me. Um. So there's no Canada geese here. No, there are. There's. They're just not very many. So okay. like even that's something that changed. You know, as I understand it, like 25, 30 years ago, there was a bigger population of Canada that would come into Arkansas, hmm. and now just the migrations change. They don't. They they kind of stop short in Illinois now. It, it, so there's got to be a biological reason for that that has to do with the kind of geese that they are and what they eat. I mean, I would assume. Man, there's yeah, and there's it's, there's a lot of reasons. Like if you ask someone why is duck hunting in Arkansas the way it is right now, I mean, that could be you could spend hours and hours and hours talking about it and maybe not still understand all of it. Uh, but no, I mean, it's, it's you'll see Canada's. You could uh, you could work some occasionally, you know. There's some guys that, uh, and I I've seen some guys on Instagram that like every year they're uh, they're more in the central part of the state, but they wear Canada's out early season in September in these strawberry fields, hmm. you know. But it's it, but it's also a matter of the waterfowling culture, you know. So like Louisiana waterfowling culture is based around uh, gadwalls and speckle bellies. Mm-hmm. Arkansas waterfowling culture is based around mallards. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you go some places and all they shoot is diver ducks. And like, I mean, that has to be connected to opportunity, though, right? I mean, like, so maybe the mallards aren't making it all the way down to Louisiana? Yeah. yeah. No, no. I mean, there's mallards in Louisiana. Uh, they just don't value them as much? No, there's just a lot more gadwalls and specks historically. So they just kind of wanted to be successful. So they're like, hey, let's culturally elevate the gadwall. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, they call them gray ducks down <laughs> that sounds there. sounds right, doesn't it, Natalie? That's what I would do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, cake. I'm starting to elevate doe white-tailed deer. Sure. Because that's all I can kill. 
Well, man, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's availability, <laughs> right it's opportunity. You know, you you also have these different flyways. You know, so like the Mississippi Flyway has more mallards. You know, this place is called Black Duck Revival. We don't get very many black ducks. That's a that's a East Coast thing, right? You know, or right. Uh, and you got the Central Flyway, and you got the Pacific Flyway, and then you got. So this a, is a major mallard flyway. Yeah, this is. But it's changed into a snow goose, speckle belly flyway more than in times past. Well, I'm just I'm. We're talking about speckle bellies and snow geese specifically in Arkansas, not necessarily the entire flyway. Okay. So yeah, this is. I mean, you got to want to nerd out on ducks and geese and stuff to really get all this stuff figured out. And I still don't know all of it. You know, like I know, I know some stuff about where I hunt and less stuff about other places, you know, but I mean, even like how fat the birds are here as compared to someplace else or, uh, you know, if you go North, they're killing South Dakota, North Dakota, they're killing ducks in dry fields. Like very few ducks are killed in dry fields in Arkansas. Like our duck hunting is tied to water, Mm. you know? So, uh, and, and you're talking about the same species, like up in North Dakota, they'll just flat wear mallards out in dry fields. But here they won't land in a dry field. I mean, they will, but almost everybody's killing them over water. Now, are they killing them there because that's the only place they're at, or they just choose not to hunt dry fields because that's not the way we do it? Is, is that a fair question? Yeah, no. I think it's mostly because that the ducks are here are tied to water. But And now these ducks that are landing in what they call green timber, mm-hmm. which would be flooded timber, like they're landing into these, a lot of places that would have acorns on the ground. Is that right? That is underwater. Are they eating a lot of acorns? Yeah. So, I mean, they. So, I guess what I'm getting at is maybe in North Dakota, the water doesn't have as much food on the bottom. Yeah. In North Dakota, they're eating, they're eating food out of cornfields and the like. I yeah. should be a duck biologist. You should. Uh, no, here they're. So, flooded green timber is. Um, flooded green timber is, you know, that's kind of an ephemeral thing as well. So, you know, say maybe up to September, October, October, normally, this is just, uh, oak forest, you know, I'll deer hunt and squirrel hunting these things. And then rivers like the cash and the white will flood. They'll get beyond their banks and they'll flood into those, uh, those hardwood forests. And then it floats all that, uh, food source up so you're talking about acorns you're talking about invertebrates that you know that live in the soil um all of that stuff and ducks get in there and you know it's the same reason that bears are feeding on acorns you know it's a calorie dense food source and you know you're talking about a, a bird that might have lost 50 percent of its entire body weight traveling down flying here. down here yeah and so then they're going to I think it takes maybe five to seven days, they say, for it to replenish uh, that weight that it's lost. Really, that quickly? Yeah, that seems quick to me. Well, I mean, they'll, and they'll, it depends on what they're eating. You know, like there's actually there's more uh, there's more calories and protein in corn than there is in rice, which even that could contribute to why you know there's more birds uh, hanging out in uh, Missouri maybe than coming down here because Missouri's. Because we have more rice here. Yeah, Missouri's yeah so it's corn-heavy. super complex. Yeah, yeah. Super complex why they land where they land, why they do what they do. But it's all got to be connected to, to 
to food for them though, because this whole migration for them is all about all about food. They'd stay up north if the water didn't freeze and they could oh, they find abso- food. Source. They absolutely will. Like yeah. that's the thing. A duck does not have. People think that ducks have to fly south. They don't have to fly south. What they're doing is they're fighting the freeze line and the snow line. It's yeah. like you know, a duck has a down coat on, right? A duck wants it to be thirty-three degrees. They want it as cold yeah, as it can be without freezing and locking up their food. Yeah. So when it starts getting cold enough to freeze that water up and lock their food sources up, or the snow's so deep that they can't dig through it and get down to that food, then they they'll move south. And then when you have, I mean, like here's something crazy to think about. You know, you have like these, say, like these nuclear plants or something, right? And they're pumping river water in and then expelling it at a temperature of, you know, 82 degrees or something year round. So those reservoirs and the like, they don't freeze up anymore. They always stay open. So the ducks, they're not getting locked out of it, you know? Yeah. Uh, But I mean, but just historically, this has always been a mallard flyway. You know, they've got, they've got dig sites of, you know, ancient humans in this area where there's, just years and years and years of just compiled mallard bones, you know, that they Mm. were, they were killing with, you know, bow and arrow or a slingshot or whatever they were using at the time. Mm. So this is historically always been I bet they were shooting them off the top of the water, not when they were flying. Probably. That's why they call it Arkansas on it. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I don't know about that. But no, I guarantee you they were shooting them. (laughs) They were getting them any way they could, you know. Um, They may not have been as good a sportsman as we are. That's what I'm getting at. Man, you know, I've got I've got mixed <laughs> feelings about that and all the all the rules and and stuff about uh about duck hunting. You know, really in my estimation and this might make me a pariah to some people. You know, the sport, quote unquote in it, uh it's in, you know, communicating and interacting with those birds and convincing them to come in and land. Right. You know, so like once they've once they've landed you've done I see what you're saying. You've done It's kind of like the debate do. of do you shoot a You've heard the the great big game debate about, which I think is re- absolutely ridiculous. There's no debate, but should you shoot a bedded animal? Yeah, it is. Kind and it's of, like, it's man, if you that. if you get in close to a bedded animal and can shoot it, you've done your job. That's what I'm hearing you say. Well, I the mean, duck I'm lands not, on the water. You've done your job. Yes. Now, I would say I'm not. I'm not just making a living out of water swatting ducks. I don't want to say that, <laughs> but uh, you know, I don't. I, I see your point. I think, I, think if you well sh- I think I think a lot of times, you know, if they if you land a group of twenty five, a lot of folks will scare them, you know, they'll holler at them or something to jump them off. Yeah, uh, and then shoot them in the air. I don't know that you're, I don't know that you're uh, any really any less of a duck hunter or any less noble if you shoot one and then shoot the rest of the they end. all fly you yeah, know? yeah and like again i've got to reiterate this i'm not i'm not saying i'm making a living off of doing that sure uh but um I, yeah, some, I see your point sometimes there's i mean as long as you're being ethical and you're following the law and you're following the rules then i try not to i try not to get too too deep into how you should do stuff like do stuff that you feel okay with you know yeah i understand I understand. Natalie, change your topic here. So I was going to do this at first, but I had to establish what we were doing, and then we went into the deep, the duck hole. Um, Tell me about just like your 
career? Like, what do you do for outdoor life? So we're taking a total pivot, Jonathan. We're going to mm-hmm. come back. We're going to come back. And, and if you got some questions for, you can have them as well. All right. But yeah, like, uh, how did you get started? I just kind of give me like an overview of your like career in outdoor media. Yeah. Um, how did I get started? Yeah. How did I end up sitting right here with you guys on like a Yeah, Saturday that's where we're night? going. Yeah. Um, I, uh, the shortish version is that I studied magazine journalism in college. Um, I really mm. wanted to do photojournalism. That wasn't a major, uh, but magazine journalism was. And um, uh, we had a, I had to go to graduate. I had to do what they called a journalism residency. And I had to go work at a publication for, we we're in the quarter system, not semesters, for a quarter. Um, and there's this whole long list of publications. And <laughs> there was like, Oh, like Fortune and like Cosmo Girls. I can't go work for any of those publications. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Outdoor Life was on the list. Um, and I picked them and they picked me because most J students from, you know, Chicago did not want to go work for a hunting and fishing magazine. Uh, so I interned there in the fall of 20. 20- so did you have some uh, hunting and fishing background at all? Yeah. So I grew up. Um, I grew up, you grew in, up a, in Missouri. I grew up in Missouri. Um, my family's all originally from Kentucky. I was born in Kentucky. Um, we've got a family farm in southern Indiana. So okay. I grew up in a hunting family, but I I was around it a lot when I was a kid, but I didn't buy my first hunting license until I was in college. Um, okay. And part of that is simply just I didn't live where I hunted. My mom was not super into hunting. Um, I'm one of three girls. There's a whole lot of family dynamics there. But I got into mm. it a little bit later, but then I got into it, like, really hard. Once I started interning at OL, I was like, why? Like, why have I not been doing this my whole Me. life? And then I fell down that rabbit hole. So I interned What year there. would that have been? Uh, fall of 2012, and then I graduated college in 2013, um, and I traveled a little bit, and then I got a freelancing job at Outdoor Life. Um, kind of heard there might be an assistant editor position open, so I freelanced for eight months and worked at a restaurant. Um, lived in St. Louis with my sister, just kind of hoping the job would open up, uh, and then it did. And I guess that would have been 2014, and I moved to New York City uh, as assistant editor for Outdoor Life, and I've been there ever since. What does it? Uh, what What is the skill set that you're really good at that's made you? So you you're making a career to this now. You've been at Outdoor Life for six years. Like I'm still. I mean, I consider myself a writer, True. but uh, after uh, yeah, yeah, but. I am not a copy editor. I am not, I have no like uh, background education in uh, in English or journalism besides like high school and just a little bit of college. What, describe somebody, you don't have to describe yourself, you can describe yourself. What skill set do you have that makes you good at what you do? Uh, that's interesting. There's, I mean, there's a few things that got me the job, right, which are like on paper, um, you know, I can read and write pretty well. I'm not especially eloquent. Like the things that I say are not grammatically correct a lot of the time. Um, and I couldn't tell you like, oh, this is how you parse a sentence and this is a predicate and a subject. Like, I don't really? know. Really? Okay. I, See, like, I, I thought I, that's what you would be like really good at. Yeah. In theory, I should be able to, like, I don't speak that grammatical language of being able to like parse every single thing. You know, I've picked a lot of it up over the years, but like to me, I can look at a sentence just the way that I operate and 
say there's something wrong there that doesn't make sense and I can fix it, but I can't like I don't really care what the tech like the terminology is. That's not okay. important. To Let me. me ask you a question. Let me stop you. So I know just from being in in journalism that nobody writes something that isn't edited by someone else. Yeah. So when you turn in your stuff to whoever you turn it into, do they go, oh, great, it's Natalie's <laughs> stuff? I hope not. Um, yeah, every because that's what they say for me now <laughs> at the new place that I work, Spencer Newharth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but what you're writing is so good, you know, that it doesn't matter. They're willing to wade through grammar as long as you've got something to say. Um, so I, I will say everybody needs an editor. Uh, people who don't think they need an editors editor. Editors need editors. Yeah. I mean, I, I turn my stuff into a couple different people. They'll read it. You know, no, nothing ever gets posted unless maybe it's an Instagram caption, um, social media copy that another editor hasn't looked at. Yeah. Um, so back to your original question, like, honestly, like, you can learn to write. You can learn to do a lot of the stuff that goes into my job. Um, you have to, you have to be curious. Like you have to be genuinely interested in people. Um, you have to ask questions. Like I used to be, journalism really helped me learn to talk to people. Um, I used to be super introverted. Like did not like to pick up the phone and call somebody. Like I, ha I hated doing it. I used to hate podcasts. They used to make me sweat. Um, but journalism taught me it's like it's too cold to sweat out by this fire tonight. <laughs> you'd be surprised. Like it used to make me really nervous. But uh, what I learned through journalism is like people are fascinating and they've got fascinating stories to tell. Um, and to be a good reporter, you need to remove yourself from that a lot of the time. Sometimes there's times when you're part of the story, uh, but you also need to know like when it's not about you, when it's about the people that you're around, um, what readers are interested in, like what can they learn from this? Like what's fascinating about what's happening around you? Um, and there's so much of that in the outdoor industry. Um, like that is that at the end of the day is the coolest part of my job is I get to go a lot of places and meet really interesting people and tell their stories. And that was a job that I did not know existed um, you know, I knew about it a little in J school and then I started doing it and was like, wow. J school, journalism. Journalism school. Sorry. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so that, I, I think you just need to be curious to do this. Yeah. Um, and yeah. That's a, that's a really good answer. You know, the, I, I mean, I, I'm literally, I'm asking you that because I'm, I'm interested in it because I'm, I'm trying to understand these things for myself. Um, what I feel like that, at least the kind of air quotes journalism that I do, which might be videos or might be articles. And, and I don't do a lot of like interview type stuff. Most of the stuff I'm writing about is, is my interpretation of kind of some aspect of hunting or, or it may be even just like a how to tactic thing. But, but it feels like in, in media, we're trying to interpret, we're interpreters, you know, so like you're, you're here with Jonathan duck hunting in eastern Arkansas or goose hunting in eastern Arkansas like he may think this is like normal that's the way I always think about it like to him this is like normal life he does this all the time but we come in here and we're like interpreting where there's value where there's interest where there's significance where there's something that's weird where there's something that maybe people don't understand that he understands and it's like putting all that together but your word curious says it just perfect. Yeah. It's not just about like going somewhere and just like went hunting. I'm going to talk about the hunting. <laughs> totally. And well, and the other thing too is um, it's interpreting and people are going to do that differently. Like your takeaways from this right. trip 
could be totally and likely will be not totally different, but they'll be nuanced and they'll be different than mine. Um, You know, and so we would come away with different stories to tell that may have central characters and themes and stuff, but um, the takeaway is different. Um, and that's the other thing, uh, you know, I mentioned journalism, like school a couple times, but you don't like, you don't need that if you want to do this. Like, it, it's just like hunting. Like, if you want to get good at it, you just have to do it. So like, yeah. you just have to practice it and try and be interested. So that was the other caveat. But yeah, it's interpreting. Yeah. What's your, what's your like favorite thing? Like, I, I could, I could tell you what my favorite, like my bread and butter is inside of journalism. What's your, what's your bread and butter? What do you, what's your... What do you focus on? Like the kind of work I like to do best? Yeah. Um, I like to do, um, and they're difficult and they're the most challenging, and I often drag my feet on them, but my favorite thing to do is to go someplace, um, doesn't have to be totally wild, but someplace new and interesting, um, and write a more like in-depth reported investigative feature on it. And if I can take photos to go with it, great. Can, can you give not, me an example of sure. something you've done? Uh, one of, one of the bigger ones was, um, I went into the boundary waters in Northern Minnesota, the boundary waters wilderness. Um, I think it was early 2018. Um, I went with a couple of guys who've been working to protect the wilderness from mining, um, on the borders. Um, it's like one of the most pristine and most visited wildernesses in the U S. Uh, we went in there, uh, in March, it was completely frozen over. So we took these like sleds in, uh, camped on the ice for a few days, ice fish, snowshoed, um, just did a wilderness trip. And when I got out of there, I had to write about it. Like I had to write about this battle that was happening in this wilderness, um, and try and extrapolate my experiences into something that, um, you know, was research, but but would try and tell a story. Um, so you were involved in this story. Yeah. So I haven't, was... yeah, I happened to play a role there. And part of that's just cause like I went there, it was sort of on the ground reporting. Um, yeah. and, and what's tricky about that and kind of fun is like some of it can get dry. Like people can get worn out about, Oh, sign this petition, save this place. It's like, well, I don't live there. Like I'm worried about this. You know, people get that, that fatigue uh around a lot of public lands and and a lot of the issues that are happening and so the challenge there for me was how do i make this place and these people important to somebody who's never been here but maybe Mm -hmm. might want to one day or it's related to something that's going on where they live um so to me to do that is is the most fun um and again that's it that includes people in new places um you know i did something i'd never done before which was sleep on couple feet of ice and ice fish like i'm not from the north like i'd never done that before it's freezing uh but it was awesome so cool what 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 about you what's your Mm, you know not being solely like when i think about my outdoor media world like i'm kind of segmenting it into writing video podcasting you know, I think I, I feel most accomplished and feel like I've probably done the best interpretation of a of a of a of a hunt and portraying that to people in a way that's compelling. It's probably through video. Like I, cool. I probably like video more than anything. But I have recently uh well, I've been toying around with some longer form writing and uh I actually like that better than, so for the last seven years with Bear Honey Magazine, I've pretty much trained my brain when I write to think magazine article. Like I just think in, you know, 
1500 word blocks, you know, with sub points and a sidebar. Sure. So the last year I've been doing some longer form writing with a potential project that I'm doing. And, um, that has been really fun. Like, uh, yeah, like, like book chapters, like just, you know, having a bigger space, longer time to do it. Um, so for writing, I like the longer form communication really, but, uh, but I also love to, and people that listen to this podcast would hear this. I do, I do love people and love, um, you know, just authentic, genuine people interviewing them. Um, I do enjoy that. I do. And we've had some pretty, pretty cool interviews on this podcast with some old guys and interesting guys that, uh, probably never well i had to tell them what a podcast was that's usually <laughs> my favorite kind of guests you guys are like in the nose so you know what a podcast is but it would have been cooler natalie if you would have sat down and you would have said clay what are we what are we doing what is this and i would have been like yeah this this is going to be good no no um no i guess what i'm trying to say is guys that the world doesn't know you yeah. know the interview and those kind of guys totally. and i got i got i I know a lot of them. Those are usually the guys I gravitate towards. But um, no. So, yeah. Um, man, you weren't supposed to ask me a question. I Sorry. had another. I I, had this a, is what I do for a living. I ask people God, questions. Both Get of your us own do. podcast, Natalie. <laughs> Wait, can I ask Jonathan a question? Yes. Yes, you can. <laughs> what, what about you, Jonathan? I know you like to write, but like, what's. Um, where do you stand on this? As, as far as what, uh, what interests me, like what. Wait, ask me that like question. Like, if you're again. telling a story, like whether it's That's, writing yeah. or yeah, yeah. like, like, because uh, you, you, you do write. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, uh, I think I'm probably best at examining my own perspectives and my own interpretations of stuff. Uh, just trying to be self analytical about it. And I kind of work from the premise that the, the more personal you can make something, the more universal uh, the applicability of it is, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I'm experienced enough to act like I have some sort of a, an expertise or anything. Like most of what I've written is uh, either kind of academically research-based or like real super personal. And I, I kind of feel like I'm developing a style that's a, a blending of those two. Yeah. Jonathan wrote a real cool piece for us on a guy named Hoyt, uh, Holt Collier, who was, who was, uh, he's an African-American guy that guided Roosevelt on the famous oh, yeah. bear hunt in Mississippi when they, Holt Collier was the guy that actually lassoed the bear and had it tied up for Roosevelt. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Jonathan wrote a cool article for us in Barony Magazine about that. You did a good job with it. That's awesome. That was cool. That was that. Was, I got a lot of comments on that story just because it was oh, so really? unique. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah, man. yeah. But man, well, um, shoot, Natalie, your question is <laughs> totally through. I had another question for you. Um, are you? Uh, but you're a writer. I mean, like your main focus is writing. Um, in theory, yes. Um, a lot of what I do day to day is editing and often writing. I put that last. Um, 
I used to freelance before I got the full-time job, but there's a whole lot of things that go into being an editor. Um, I should write more, but I procrastinate. And I What's outdoor off. life trying to do? Like what, what is there? I mean, like outdoor life is such a iconic brand for outdoor. I mean, you know, arguably the, the most recognizable name really in the hunting and fishing space, especially long-term, like what are they, uh, I don't know. What are they yeah. what are they trying to do these days? Yeah. Yeah, we've been around since 1898. Um we're still, I don't know, to simply we're trying to tell good stories. I mean, that's what we like to do is we like to tell stories, we like to report on stuff. We do a lot of conservation stuff. Um we do more reporting than a lot of um I think titles in the hunting space, um both online and in print. Um, even a little bit more than our sister publication, Field and Stream. So we just like to do stuff that people are interested in. And and what's cool is even if, say, I, you know, I write something about speckle belly hunting, like ideally somebody who is reading Outdoor Life for the deer hunting, like could read that and still be interested. Um, so, we're, I mean, we're a general title. We'll talk about all kinds of stuff, including bear hunting. Um, but at the end of the day, that's what we hope to accomplish. Yeah. Now, Outdoor Life, do they have any uh, video arm of what they're doing? Uh, we do. I mean, I do a little bit of video. Like, we're all kind of one-man bands. We we used to do, um, back in the heyday of Facebook, before all the algorithms changed, we did a lot of Facebook video. Okay. Um, and so I've done various types of video, but we don't we don't have a dedicated video production team. Okay. No. Okay. Got it. Got it. Um. Hey, Jonathan, I need to tell you a story. All right. That is relevant to me sitting here right now. Let's hear it. This, this, this is a ridiculous story. Okay. Okay. Um, Baird, you know what I'm about to say. Baird Newcomb was involved in this story. This happened yesterday. Like, I, I'm almost not sitting in this chair because of what happened. Oh, damn. And a decision man. that I made. I've been hunting a deer, and I'm not going to say, like, I kind of have to keep the cards, like, spread across the table, face down, like, in all my hunting. So I hunt down in South Arkansas. I hunt up in Northwest Arkansas. I kind of hunt all over Western Arkansas, okay? Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say where this happened. And I can drive to these places and do a day hunt. So, so who knows where this happened? But I have been after a really big buck. The best buck that I've had on camera in since 2012. Is that right? Best buck I've had on camera since 2012. Okay. I I think the deer's a 160 inch deer. It's probably a 150 inch deer, but we've been calling it the 160. Yeah. Uh we've actually renamed the deer after the story I'm about to tell you. Um so yesterday the Arkansas deer season lasts until tomorrow, rifle season, okay? Mm -hmm. I typically am a bow, a whitetail bow hunter. I mean, like, that's what I've, where I've made my money, metaphorical money in deer hunting is uh, whitetail bow hunting. And But in recent years, I've kind of become more of a whitetail generalist, especially when it comes to taking a big deer, which we kill a lot of deer. I mean, my these boys have literally been raised their whole life on deer meat so we're meat hunters but we we're not afraid to shoot a big one and not afraid to target a big one specifically and dedicate ourselves to it well i got pictures of this deer early 
have hunted whitetail hunted more this year than I have in many, many years, motivated by this deer. Okay. I've seen the deer with my eyes two different times, Jonathan. I, I haven't said any of this publicly. Um, I had the deer at 25 yards on October the 9th and had my bow in my hand and could not shoot the deer. Um, yesterday morning, I went to a place that I like to hunt and had intentions of hunting this place. The, the creek was too high. I could not cross the creek. So I had to reroute my whole day for hunting. And the day was pretty much like shot. I decided to go, I, I'd given up on this big deer. That's the, that's the other, this is a short version of a very long story. This deer, I have not had pictures of him uh, since November the 1st. I had a pic- lot of pictures of him in October. Then he disappeared. So for the last 30 days, this deer's just gone. And, you know, I had zero confidence that I was maybe ever going to see him again. Maybe he got killed. Maybe he wasn't going to come back. I didn't have many years of experience with this deer. Sometimes you get, you know, years of experience with a deer so you can kind of predict when they're going to start showing back up in a certain place. I've had that happen over the years, and you're like, yep, that deer's going to show up after the rut. Well, I didn't I didn't have that experience with this deer. Didn't know it. Hadn't seen the deer on camera in 30 days, and so the day was shot in this one particular location, and so I'd given up on this deer, but I ended up hunting in the area that this deer was in for the sole purpose of shooting a doe. Like, I, I, I went in there, and I told Bear, I said, man, I'm just going to go shoot a doe. That was, that was what I was going to try to do. And, uh, oh, this is a sad story. Still hurts. Um, I go in to shoot a doe, and uh, I am carrying a muzzleloader for reasons that, uh, for many reasons. The muzzleloader that I have, I love it. It's very light. Where I'm hunting, there's no chance, really, of getting two shots at any game. This muzzleloader is accurate, like it's super light, small, so it's like super short. I enjoy carrying the gun. Mm -hmm. I've killed a lot of critters with muzzleloaders during firearm seasons, so I didn't think much about carrying this muzzleloader. I'm I'm trying to tell the story so that it comes out the best. I'm sitting there the last two hours of daylight yesterday and was not really even hunting, to be honest with you. I was like looking at my phone. I was distracted. Like I was like not of all the hunting I've done this whole year. I was, it was the least, it was the most distracted hunt I've been on the entire year at f- about four forty-five, I have five bucks come walking through, which was news to me because these bucks had got back into a bachelor group. They were all year old bucks, spikes and three points, five of them in a single file line came walking wow. past me and I was like, huh, that's interesting. That perked me up, you know? And, uh, one of them started looking back behind him, looking back behind him, looking back behind him. And sure enough, the buck that I've been after all year, I just turn and he's at 40 yards right there. I've got a I've got a muzzleloader that shoots like lights out, you know? Um, the problem, the problem comes in with what happened a week before 
when I hunted in the rain for about six hours straight. And I had not reloaded the muzzleloader mm. after the rain. But earlier in the season, this is a new, I'm going to tell, I mean, everybody knows what I'm shooting. I'm shooting a CVA Acura mountain rifle. It's not the gun's fault what's about to happen. Okay, I'm foreshadowing. Earlier in the year, Jonathan, I hunted in heavy rain for hours, and I was carrying that muzzleloader, and I thought, man, there's no way this gun will shoot. And I cocked it back when I got done hunting just to test it. It was a brand-new gun. Pow! Shot just great. And I'd been sitting in the rain, so I was like, man, I got a lot of confidence. Three weeks, two weeks ago, I was walking across the same creek I couldn't cross the other day, fell in the creek while I was holding the muzzleloader. The breech plug went under the water. I filmed this, and I was like, I wonder if this thing will shoot. When I got back to the truck, I put my camera up on the grill of my truck, cocked the hammer, boom, shoots, just perfect. Like So I have like incredible confidence in this gun not letting exterior water get into the the pyrodex pellets okay what clay did not calculate is extreme weather variations in my truck this this week it got up to down to like 21 degrees up in northwest arkansas and then it was also inside of my truck was probably getting up into the 60s and 70s at different times during the day Mm -hmm. and i just left my gun in my truck and what happens with muzzleloaders, and I, I knew this, but I just, for some reason, it didn't account for me. You know, it just wasn't going to happen to me. Those muzzleloaders, when they go through, like, big temperature swings and you have them loaded, they will condensate moisture in the barrel. Sure. So it wasn't the rain. Well, I'm just now kind of thinking all this through. Uh, it, it, this is also fresh. Well, and I, I I had figured this before. It was it was the, it wasn't it was not the rain that happened the week before. That did happen. It was the it was being in my truck and the fact that I hadn't reloaded it since that day. Yeah. And anyway, this big, big, hundred and fifty inch easy plus buck standing there, thirty five yards, hunted all season. I put the crosshairs on him, and that gun just just pops in a ball of fire spits out of that barrel and lands about 10 yards out in front of my gun. And uh, the deer just runs off. So mm. so no no deer, no huge deer for Clay. So that's my story. That's a sad story, It's a terrible story. story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a terrible story. So the reason that is relevant to me being here right now is if I had known that deer was anywhere in the country, I would probably be up there hunting tonight. But because I spooked him so bad last night, mm-hmm. I'm like, like, yeah, of course we're going goose hunting. You, you trying to go get him at the Christmas hunt? Well, I'll bow hunt him. Okay. I mean, if he's still around. Yeah. I, these deer like this, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I didn't see that deer again. May, you know, Potentially next year, I think he would... I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'll. I don't know if I'll see him again. How bad did they run off? Everybody's asked me that question, and I. I don't think that's really a fair question. When deer run off, they just run off. <laughs> you don't have deer run at different speeds. They all like leave at top speed. You know, that's funny. There was there was, was his tail up. Was like 
that's what's bizarre is I saw nothing. There was blue, you know, like the 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 pellets ignited to some degree. What I think happened is I think that there was like partial ignition. And so the bullet probably just like hit the dirt right out in front. But what puffed out was part of that Pyrodex pellet that was like half ignited. And so I think I was so focused on like the malfunction, I didn't yeah. even see him run off. Yeah. Like I never even saw him run off. So, so we spent a good part of this morning looking for the, I, I went and looked for the deer, tried to find any indication of if it was hit and nothing. I, I made big loops and circles. So I'm, you know, 99.9% sure that it, the deer was not, was not hit. So anyway, I just had to tell you guys that story. So you would, you know, just know. Yeah. Well, I hate that so happened, sorry, but I'm man. glad you came to chase <laughs> To a waterfowl hunter like Jonathan, he's like, what's the big deal, man? I missed a goose yesterday. <laughs> oh, I would, I would be like, heartbroken over that, man. <laughs> I mean, I killed, I was killing deer before I was killing ducks. Yeah. Well, Bear was heartbroken over it, too. Bear was after this deer, too, but he killed, he used both of his buck tags up. So, no, I'm still trying to process the uh, emotional trauma. Uh, I mean, I've missed plenty of deer, but this is the biggest deer I've ever missed. And it's the, it's the just having one in your lap that close with no, I mean, when I saw him, I was just like, this is it. This, this is done deal. So that's, that's what's hard for me to stomach. It wasn't like he was a little bit out of range or he was walking or he was running away when I shot. It was like I could have hit him with a rock. That's what's sad. And I do want to say that – I just want to say it again. Like, people have heard me rant about how great my CVA is. Mm-hmm. It is. I still love the CVA. If you drop in water and pick it up, I think it would shoot. If you leave it in your truck with 50-degree temperature swings, any muzzleloader in the world, it's not going to shoot. So here's what I learned, and the whole reason that I'm going to tell that story – is because of the breech the breech plug on those CVAs you can just screw out with your hand you don't need a tool which every muzzleloader I've had you have had to have a tool mm-hmm. you just got to unload it you just got to screw out the breech plug pour the pyrodex pellets out you know it's just little pellets yeah and you just put those pellets back in just like you're loading a single shot gun just like i mean pretty much every time you hunt that's what i'm going to do from now on so yeah man i actually i learned that lesson uh when I was hunting that bear and I'd found all that sign and I called you about it and I went back and I sat out there in the rain, like underneath this, uh, this little outcropping of rock. And, uh, I never even thought I'd, I'd actually like put a uh, duct tape over the, over the, uh, barrel of the gun. And then right there by the breech plug, I thought I'd was good to go. And I, whatever, I didn't kill that bear and I went home. Like a week later, I pulled that thing out, and it was just, you know, it was like uh, it was like a poultice or something in there. Like it wasn't solid anymore. It was like a paste of pyrex really? pellets. Yeah, so it wouldn't. I well, mean, it, that a week bear, later, it wouldn't have shot. Yeah, I mean, but I think I'm afraid of that bear to come out. You know, at 20 yards, and I'd shot it, it wouldn't have fired. So, yeah, and I didn't. I hadn't messed with muzzle loaders at a ton at all up to that point now i mean i did kill a deer last year with that same muzzle loader but uh just very different conditions so yeah man that uh 
Oh, God. It, it hurts my heart for you, man. You know, I've never had any trouble with muzzleloaders. This is the first time, and, and I love muzzleloaders because of the, you're getting to hunt with a firearm in a, in a, in a good part of the season mm-hmm. usually. But on this, in this case, it was going against me because it was during a firearm season. I mean, I could have been carrying a rifle, but it was just like, man, this gun shoots as good as the rifles I've got. I'm going to shoot this gun. So I learned a valuable lesson. Very, very valuable. Um, uh, so anyway, that's, that's why I'm so sad, Jonathan. We'll see if we can change it tomorrow, man. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm looking forward to it very much. So, um, Natalie, any, any, uh, closing thoughts? We can, we've been, we've, we've, we've been talking for an hour and 12 minutes, which is about on, on par for the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. Well, I do, but I'm not going to start anything fresh now. Uh, oh, you have no, something? No, no, no. I, I could. No, I don't. No, no, no. No, that, no, no, no. Same. I, I was just thinking about my mishap with uh, during muzzleloader season. Let's in hear Arkansas it. This Let's year. hear This it. was the bear story I was yeah. telling you about earlier. Oh, the yeah. only thing I wanted See, to add, because this I... is the Bear Hunting Magazine oh, podcast, yeah, and sure. I didn't want to, you know, only talk about. No, no. It, hit us. Um. I did something stupid during muzzleloader season this year in Arkansas, which was uh, I was running behind and I did not check my muzzleloader before I went out to go hunt in the Ozark National Forest uh, with a couple of buddies. Um, So I took my bow with me because I was like, great, like I, you know, I'll just shoot my bow. There's a range near camp. I can go in the middle of the day on the opener, just like check it. But I don't want to take something out that I might have knocked off, whatever. It'd been a few years since I shot it. Uh, so opening morning of muzzleloader season, I go wander around the national forest and I don't know, it was probably like 8 a.m., 9 a.m., something like that. I sit down on this trail. Um, it's kind of this big open bowl in front of me and I see what looks like a pretty good game trail. Um, and I'm on the side of this ridge and I just sit down and eat breakfast for like 15 minutes, put my wrapper away. I'm just sitting there and here comes a bear down this trail. And I mean, mm. I just moved to Arkansas. I heard there are bears here, but I've never been just like sitting in the woods. <laughs> like I've, I've killed a bear before. I've hunted bears, but it's been nothing like this in Arkansas. Um, and it's just it's coming down the trail. And I'm like, oh, this is perfect. Because it looked like he was going to take this trail down into this little bowl. And I'm sitting, you know, 15, 20 yards up on the hillside. Perfect mm. vantage, almost like I'm in a tree stand. Um, and he's going to walk down below me. Uh, except for what happens is he doesn't follow the valley down. He starts walking towards me. Um, and I'm sitting there with my bow and I forgot how bad their eyes are. Cause I shifted a little bit and I, you know, I clipped my release to the bow and I kind of turned and was waiting for him to walk down broadside. And he just kept coming and he kept coming mm. and he was facing me. Why didn't this happen to you, Jonathan? <laughs> Jonathan is burning the boot leather off his boots. Trying with to a do- muzzleloader would have been perfect. But yeah. meanwhile, this bear is just facing me head on. He's not a very big bear. So it's not like his chest is like right in front. You know, I don't have a shot with my bow. And maybe somebody else would have shot him right in the chest, but he just kept coming and kept coming. And so I was sitting there frozen, waiting for him to maybe turn. I could get my broadside shot. And finally, he's about three yards from me, like where Jonathan's sitting. Wow. And he finally looks up and he just stares at me for about 30 seconds. And I stare at him. And I mean, the only shot I have is his head. Um, And I don't have my bow drawn because I was waiting for him to turn. And we just stare at each other. 
for about 30 seconds. Wow. And he turns around and he runs away the exact way he came. So it went from head to ass and he just took off. Um, and had wow. I done my homework and brought my muzzleloader with me, I probably could have shot a mm. bear the opening day of muzzleloader season in Arkansas. Man, what an experience. Yeah. But that one's my fault. That's not leaving a... That's that's not a act of nature messing with the powder. Oh, that, make, in your, that makes me feel better. Now, that thanks. was just me being stupid. So, anyway, <laughs> that's my bear story. That was the only thing I had to add to man to your takeaway. I I wouldn't I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for that to happen again. Yeah. in Arkansas. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I wish I wish you'd have killed it. Where Where have you killed a bear? Uh, up in Saskatchewan. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that was also with muzzleloader with the CB. So, oh, really? Hmm. Hmm. That's a good bear story. That's a good bear story. Yeah, it would have been better if I killed him. But hey, first day hunting in Arkansas. Did you, ever, I'll did take you it. do you have any intel into why the bear was there? I mean, like, was there something going on? The the trail itself that I had seen, I'm in retrospect, I realized it and after having talked to my buddies who are used to seeing bear sign around there. It was it was a bear trail. I mean, it was covered in leaves and it was wide. Um, it wasn't yeah. worn down to the dirt like a deer trail. It wasn't narrow. I mean, it was pretty wide and it was just that's the only thing I can figure. Um, it yeah. was sort of a trail down something he used pretty often. But huh. Cool. Now, you know, I don't, if somebody, if, if you said would someone have done a frontal shot on yeah. it, I mean, that would be super risky even with... Yeah. I mean, he was yeah. three yards away, and if your bow's heavy enough, and he he was a younger bear, so I yeah. do think that it would have, it might have been really hard trail to follow, but I mean, shoot, bears yeah. are hard to trail anyway. Yeah. Um. So some people I know probably would have taken that shot, but I just, I didn't, and yeah. I, I wasn't ready, so... That's cool. Very cool. Well, um... Jonathan, closing thoughts that we do justice. We I feel like we took a pretty good swat at uh, understanding a little bit about waterfowl and kind of what's happening. I mean, obviously it's a unending sure, topic yeah. of conversation, but but at least for what we're doing, I mean, like uh, we're gonna be. Well, we didn't really talk about exactly what we're doing. We're gonna be we're gonna be sitting in layout blinds in the middle of a big spread of decoys in agricultural fields. And you guys have been seeing like thousands of geese. Am I right? Yeah. So we're not gonna we're not actually we're not gonna be in layout blinds. We're just gonna be on backboards. So okay, I mean, backboards. I mean, it's just. Uh, I mean, we're gonna be laying out there uh, in the middle of the decoys. We're gonna be wearing white, trying to blend in with the snow goose decoys, and yeah, hopefully, uh, if they do what they uh, they have done the last few few hunts, then. Uh, well, some good opportunities for shots and uh man it's a it's a cool way to do it too because you're just out there in the middle of it you know uh even even like hunting timber and stuff you you're you're behind a tree you got treetops and whatnot over you like doing it this way you're just out there in the middle of it all and uh, yeah it's a cool way to experience it you know yeah man i'm lo- i'm really looking forward to it you know in all the waterfowl and again i'm 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 not a I'm not, I've not done a lot of waterfowl hunting, but just like looking at waterfowl from the outside in, goose hunting seems like, to me, it was, it's more appealing than even like duck hunting and timber. And I, and I realized that would like make people angry, me saying that probably, but like big, big goose, remember, I got to feed all these kids. Yeah, like yeah, sure. These are so big. They're beautiful. 
they come in these huge, massive flocks. And the way you described them coming in like ter- pterodactyls, yeah, that got me going. So anyway, I'm I'm looking forward to it, Jonathan. It'll be it'll be fun. I mean, they come in singles and triples and stuff too. I mean, I'm I'm describing best case scenario to you, but I mean, really, with all of it, it's a uh, it's the it's the convincing them. You know, it's the it's the interaction. It's like, you know, like what a lot of people like about turkey hunting is like you're directly interacting with the animal. It's it's not just an ambush scenario. Yeah. I mean, there's ambush and ducks, there's pond jumping and stuff, but that's not that's not what this is. This is them thinking that they are landing with a bunch of their buddies. You know, will will some of them actually hit the ground? Land land in the deeks. Yeah, I mean, it depends. Uh, At what point do they realize that they're surrounded by, like, white Tyvek weather vanes? Man, it's so... I mean, would they just land in it and just, like, start eating and, like, be there for 30 minutes? I mean, they will. They'll land. Really? They'll land. They'll... uh, Look, a lot of this is dependent on the weather. It's dependent on the wind. Like, you know, if we're hunting these silo socks, like, uh, seven miles per hour wind totally transforms it you know like if it's two miles an hour it's it's hard okay but, so you, a seven mile per hour wind on these silo socks which are these white like weather vanes on sure. a stake makes it look like a yeah flock seven of, to ten miles per hour that I that's mean, what you want huh yeah i mean that's that wind isn't freezing you out real bad or anything but it's making those things bob and move and even like a full body decoy is going to move around a little bit in that wind like you always want some wind for waterfowl decoys, uh, even just on water or anything else. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, shadows matter, overcast days versus sunshiny days matter, cloud cover matters. Uh, they can uh, – it's, it's much easier for them to pick you out on an overcast day than it is on a bright, sunshiny day. Mm. You know, so, I mean, there's all these different – and even, like, You'll see a difference in 15 minutes, like we're waiting for the sun to hit us. we got too many shadows on us. When that sun gets right over there and hits us and lights us up, they'll want to come in better. Hmm. So, yeah, Ephemeral. Man, ephemeral, man. It's like the the undulating nature of of birds, but uh, it can be, like I, like I said before, man, it's, it's stupendous just to be a part of it, you know, and just to yeah. observe it and just to, to be able to interact with a with an animal on in that way. So, I mean, even if you don't, if you don't fire a shot, there, there's still good days. There's still good hunts, you know? Yeah. So Jonathan, how could people like, uh, so like next year, like you'll be booking hunts here. Like how could people find you? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, it's like same as regular man as black duck revival.com or black duck revival on Instagram. There's a, there's a snow goose hunt, uh, for the, the first few days of February, that's like a conservation. Do you hunt. have any hunts that are still available for this yeah. season? That that's the last one. W- w- tell so, me when it is. So it's a, uh, it's like uh, the first three days or the the last day of January is arrival, and then you hunt the first two days of February. That's a. So call Jonathan and come hunt with him. Yeah, you can come hunt snow geese. That's a conservation hunt. Not so. you, Bear. You don't have enough money. <laughs> but no, it's a it's a cool way to see a ton, 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 ton of birds, uh, and. Just experience something cool. So yeah, there's a few spots on that left, and yeah, we'll be, we'll probably still do some goose hunts next year, and probably try and do some different stuff. You know, like Black Duck Revival is, 
is a it's it's ephemeral as well, you know, like I, I see it being here, I see it being you know, not always being contained to here, but you know, following birds and going different places and trying different species and uh just giving people an opportunity to to try something or kind of be welcomed into something that they might be interested in and really try something yeah. neat. Man, this is such a perfect time. Like, the one thing I do like about this hunt and, and the and especially the hunts after the first of the year is that most of the big game hunting is done. And I think that's yeah. why waterfowl hunting probably if water if waterfowl hunting had to compete hundred percent with September, October, November big game hunting, it probably wouldn't be as big as it is. Or maybe big game hunting wouldn't be as big as it is. But I like it that they kind of they kind of they overlap some mm-hmm. but they kind of you know you can do all the deer hunting you want and then go waterfowl hunting and these these hunts aren't expensive i mean as compared to most things so i mean people could afford to most people could afford to come down here and hunt with you and uh yeah so it's yeah i mean there's day cool. there's day hunts just one day hunts you know that are that are you know a few hundred dollars yeah so it's, I mean, I'm not saying that, I mean, a few hundred dollars is a few hundred bucks, but yeah, it's not, it's not going to cost you what a moose in Saskatchewan or something is going to cost you. Yeah, you know, it's exactly. A, it's a, it's a cool, fun thing to do. Like James Brandenburg came down with his son, you know, and it's kind of like a perfect thing for that. Yeah. And the, it's, it, we're not roughing it, man. I mean, you're cooking for us. It's cool. It's cool, man. Natalie, how can people find you? Uh, you can go to outdoorlife.com or find us on Instagram. It's outdoorlife or outdoor underscore life. Um, follow us there. Find our stories. Yep. Magazines on the newsstand. Yep. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you guys. Good to talk with you, Natalie. Jonathan, as always, it's a pleasure. Sure thing, dude. Yeah, thanks for having us. Keep the wild places wild because that's where those speckled belly geese live. <laughs>